Support for this podcast and the following message come from State Farm. Manage your coverage, pay your bill, and even file a claim with the State Farm mobile app. With a network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to talk to about options. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's 1965. A white minister is murdered in Selma, Alabama, but no one is held to account. More than 50 years later, we return to the place where it happened, to call a lie a lie and finally solve this murder. White Lies from NPR. New episodes drop Tuesdays. From NPR Music, it's all songs considered. I'm Bob Boylan. I'm here with NPR Music's Tom Heisinger. And today, a conversation with Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood talking about his music, which premiered at the Tiny Desk today. You probably know him as a guitarist for Radiohead, but Johnny Greenwood has also been composing music for films like There Will Be Blood and Phantom Thread, and for orchestra and chamber groups over the years. In fact, the music you're hearing is called 88 Number 1, one of the two world premieres of Greenwood pieces. We commissioned members of Ensemble Signal to perform them at the Tiny Desk. We spoke to Johnny in his hometown of Oxford, England, at a small BBC studio there. Tom and I were here in Washington, D.C., I started the conversation by asking him what kind of music was playing around the house when he was a kid. I'm a youngest child of the family, so luckily I've got older brother and sister with good taste in music. I just heard their music, really. It's funny to think about the other day when you had about like 20 records, mm-hmm. I think, not through any sort of deprivation, just because that's, that's just how we were. And so we ended up listening obsessively to the same recordings over and over again which looking back I'm kind of glad I did because it was about you know you'd really get deeply into things even if they were you know on the surface quite frivolous you'd you'd really obsess about recordings and yeah so I remember every morning before school Colin my brother also in Radiohead would always play one of the same like three or four records every day and and a weird mixture of things as well like as well as things I'm proud of and always mentioning like um New Order or Smiths or whatever. Uh-huh. There's also lots of Kid Creole and the Coconuts and <laughs> just odd mixtures of things, quite disparate, but also very limited in, in, in number. You want to pick one? Oh, I mean, like I, I used to listen to Annie, I'm Not Your Daddy an awful lot and just kind of marvel at how it sounded um, as well as Everything's Gone Green by New Order. That was something we listened to like, every morning for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> It was just part of the routine. It's funny. Let's do that.
was that there were many versions of that song by the way was that the version you listened to I you, think so the only thing missing is a slight the same jump in the record oh. so there's one one <laughs> word of that lyric that I haven't actually heard possibly ever I was waiting for that skip to happen and it didn't which is very peculiar I love that uh, what was it that you were listening to it on? Was it a, a well? Describe it, and, and was it in your brother's room? No, it was um, my. It was the you know sitting room downstairs. Some um, family, family uh, all in one hi-fi kind of thing. Yeah, and it would, would have been a would be the like a twelve-inch single. I can imagine that's uh, that's really good music to listen to in the morning to get you ready to go to school. I mean, it puts me right back to kind of dark winter mornings in England and and getting books ready and to, to head off to school. Yeah, it's weird. We know a little bit now what you're listening to when you're getting ready to go to school in terms of like records, but I'm wondering back then in those days, what was the first instrument that you actually played? Uh, well, it was the recorder and I'm sure I've already bored your asses off talking about recorders before, but um, yes, it was would have been that. Um, uh, you you yeah. haven't bored me, so I I, I want to know. We called them because we had plastic ones when I went to school. We called them right. flutophones. Flutophones, right? <laughs> wow. Yes, I played one too. Yeah, did you? Yeah. So what would the would would like hot cross buns was my, was the was the number one tune back then? <laughs> okay. Yeah. What about for you? Well, I mean, I took it very seriously and kept playing them until I was. I still play it. Wow. So I was in recorder groups all the time and hanging out with those kind of dangerous teenagers who like to play recorder. <laughs> it's so dangerous when did the guitar show up in your repertoire then late really late my brother played colin plays classical guitar and i would occasionally take it from his room but i didn't get a guitar till i was 15 14 wow. 15 something like that so just in terms of years to give people framework you 15 yep. maybe in mid 80s 80 86 or yeah so. exactly but listening to other music like if you're playing the recorder then you're not listening only to new order or 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 magazine or or someone like the, the british bands of the day what other music were you listening to that may have that either the recorder or that kind of music would have fit into i mean i can name bands and stuff but what's becoming more clear to me is, is how lucky i was to play in these kind of li- like little lo- local groups playing recorders and violas and things and it was the music around where i grew up was really good in terms of how the local you know schools just had a network of great teachers and you know and there'd be summer schools all based based around music and i'd play like in churches playing little sort of concerts of of amateur groups choirs playing bach and we'd be playing the string parts and i was really lucky and that stuff had a big effect on me i think you know that sort of concept of of live music and all these different instruments and ways ways of playing them and yeah that was something I really you know lived for. Bach is a long way away, it seems to me, from Olivier Messiaen, who is a a composer, and you've chosen some music by by this very devout Catholic but very free thinking, free wheeling French composer Olivier Messiaen and the Turin Galila Symphony. It seems you must have been kind of a precocious grade schooler listening to the Turin Galila Symphony at that age how did you get turned on to that i think it was because a teacher played it to us when we were 16 ah. and he pointed out that this composer was still alive which he was in the early 90s i found that really exciting and i thought that was the same as being into bands something about someone still being alive and writing music meant that in my head that was the same as you know magazine or new order or whatever wow um allowed me to get excited about it in a way that 
some of the nerdier kids around me possibly didn't. Not that I was free of any, you know, I mean, I'm a recorder player, so I'm as guilty of that title as anyone. But um, yeah, I just I just lumped them all together and thought that there is all as, you know, as wonderful and unattainable as each other, whether it's, you know, New Order or, or Messiaen. I'm going to sneak some of this in here and let's hear it. Was, was this sort of a, a solitary listening experience, maybe? Or, or did you gather with friends and, and, and listen to this sorts of music? It was solitary. I mean, I think something about classical music that is quite a solitary experience, really. It's a good bedroom listen, really loud. I'm curious if you ever had a chance to thank your teacher. Uh, good question. I'm not sure. Okay. Ian Donald, he was called. But yeah, I think, I think he knows I really rated him, really enjoyed. <laughs> and we had another music teacher called Simon Finlow, and... This is when I was 11. He came into us school one day and said, um, what makes music good? Well, when is music good? Why is a song a good good song? Mm. And everyone's giving their answers and trying to, and saying, you know, well, if it's memorable and catchy, then it's good. I remember him unpicking that and trying to get to the bottom of what the point of, of, of music and songs and, and where the pleasure is. And I remember that being a really mind-blowing music lesson. That is a great question. So uh, we have to ask it yeah. of you now. What? <laughs> <laughs> What, what do you think makes music good these days? Oh, uh, you'd think I'd have an answer <laughs> after having 30 years to think about that. Um, it's funny, I start to think that music is about surprising you, but in a, in a satisfying way. I mean, there's some music that is just endlessly surprising, like from second to second, and that's usually quite exhausting to listen to. But some music surprises you, but in a way that's very satisfying, that it's, it's still somehow right. But it's not necessarily, you know, predictable. And Messiaen was certainly one of those kinds of music. Yeah, he's interesting because you just you hear like a few seconds of Messiaen and you just you know it's him. And there's not many composers you can say that about. He said he had a, a kind of a lang- musical language had a had a colour to his music that's just that's unique and um, it's special stuff. Somehow I I, I hear some of those colourings or maybe at least the spirit of Messian in one of the pieces that you wrote that was performed on on the tiny desk by the ensemble signal which is three miniatures from water and and maybe it's just because you you use the indian drone instruments the tempuras in the piece but um were you thinking at all about Messian while you were writing that or sure i mean it's something i keep going back to is he he wrote music in certain set of scales and that miniature that they did at the at the tiny desk is um, something written in the same mode. In fact, those brass you heard in that little orchestral part of Triangulator Symphony just now, that was exactly the same scale. Ah, uh, the octatonic scale? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Nice. And it's Tom. just a nicer way to think of music, to have a set of limitations that, you know, notes that you're allowed to use. But um, but outside of the world of, you know, major and minor, it's, it's, you know, it's an old idea, but it's really, there's something really satisfying about it. 
I'd love to play some of that Tiny Desk. You obviously can watch it online, but Tom, do you want to introduce formally who's playing? Well, we should mention, too, that um, that the, the piece is called Three Miniatures from Water. We'll hear an excerpt now, and it's, uh, it's scored for piano, violin, cello, bass, and two Indian tampuras, and if you're not familiar with that instrument, it's uh, uh, a stringed instrument that provides the kind of a drone basis on a lot of uh, Indian classical music. And the performance at the Tiny Desk is by the New York-based new music outfit called Ensemble Signal. Great. And, of course, written by Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. just a little bit from Three Miniatures from Water, music written by Johnny Greenwood and performed by Ensemble Signal at our Tiny Desk performance that you can see online. Johnny, the the drone situation in that piece is so great. I'm wondering, what is it about drones that is so comforting in a way? Yeah, I mean, I'm so used to working with sounds that are very repetitious. And you know like holding down a, a key on a keyboard or it tends to just and, and there's so much music that is looped nowadays there's something about drones that don't repeat and yet are the same note but change in in color and texture that just are really fascinating you know it's 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 really fun to sit and play a tempora and just listen to the overtones and yeah you can get really get sucked into it it's, it's, it's a lovely thing it's like uh you just being mesmerized by the waves washing in at the beach or, or staring into a crackling fire or something. There's something just mesmerizing about it. But lovely, lovely music. I also Thank love the way that drones change everything around it so that when other things, other instruments and sounds interact with the drones, it changes the nature of all the other music around it. So it's really Yeah, exactly. I wonder how you write music. You play many instruments like do you hear it in your head and the actual writing of it is an execution or does is it all about the experimentation on let's say a keyboard or picking up instruments what it's mostly done on 
paper just because that's a clearer way to think. I just get so muddled with something about an untidy physical desktop is easier for me to deal with than an untidy computer desktop. And if I see all those little icons and I'm just confused of... Huh. I'm really cluttered, really untidy in any way. So um, working on paper is just feels clearer. And so you're um, hearing it then in your head and, and writing the notes down is simply just a way to notate what you want to be hurt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'll sit at piano and, and work on paper like that, and, and then develop stuff. And then, you know. do you use any like composing software, like Sibelius or anything like that, or you just go st- old school straight to manuscript paper? I quite like using Finale, which is the uh, software of choice for nerdy music engravers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like someone once told me that musicians use um, Sibelius and uh, computer programmers use Finale, which is cruel <laughs> but probably true. So I quite like that. I quite like it. But then that's it's quite deceptive because it's a bit like um, word processing in that you can write something terrible in text, but if the font's nice, you're kind of, you start thinking, maybe this is a well-written novel I've got here. And it's a bit like that with music. You can make it look amazing and look like real music. And then, then when you hear it, it can, you know, can be a disaster. So, yeah, and also using that kind of software does tend to lead you down certain routes and you start writing things that sound good in the computer. Mm. which isn't the same as sounding good in real life, obviously. Uh, when you heard Lisa Moore performing this piece, was it as you imagined, or, or her interpretation inspire you or make you think differently about what you'd written? Yeah, I mean, the unspoken thing is that musicians are doing most of the heavy lifting, really. <laughs> it's like actors in a script, I suppose. You can write something and then it can be even if you write something in a script that's a little bit banal, with good actors, they can they can make it amazing. And I think the same is true with music. And so, yeah, it's, it's a surprise to hear things being played differently. And almost always, it's it's much better than you than you could have hoped. Yeah, that's a cool analogy with the actors, because uh, Olivia de Prato, the violinist in the performance of the music of yours that we just heard, she told me that uh, she felt like you, you wrote the violin part with um, some room for interpretation and, and some freedom to lead the piece in different moods. And I'm wondering if that's kind of what you had in mind when you wrote it. Do you kind of leave some interpretive space in there? Yeah, it's, it's funny because I like to hand things over and say all of this is just a suggestion, really just because I know that there's this unmeasurable... It's it's like an Indian music. You can, there's so much you can't actually notate and write down and get onto paper. And there's also, at the same time, so much that all of these performers can do with their instruments. So many amazing things. There's a sort of... There's a level of musicality that you just... You have to factor in. You have to realise that it's crazy what these musicians can do and, and just getting to write music for them is... It's a really happy motivation for me. When did that start? When did that whole process of writing start? And what was that kind of stuff that you did write anyway? At, at, at what age? I mean, I suppose it started with the Radiohead stuff. Like, even on the bends, there's a couple of songs with some strings in that would, would have just been... I think we had one cello and one violin, and that was really exciting. And then just over the course of how many records, we've just been able to get larger and larger. Not that's necessarily a good thing, but just more regularly get more than two players in, and it's fantastic. I'm going to play a, a bit of um, from OK Computer Climbing uh, up the walls, just people hear your work now in this context from Radiohead. And maybe like the the end of it is really great. Okay, I can do that.
love those strings at the end of that, Johnny. They remind me of someone. Yeah, I mean, I've been stealing from the same two composers since I was in my 20. I wouldn't call it stealing, but... Yeah, well, it's yeah. Talking of school, we were always told that if you steal from one person, then it's it's theft, and if you take it from two, then it's inspiration, it's influence. You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how true that is. Or the other um, the other phrase is, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. And and that string sound there reminds me an awful lot of a composer that we know that you're uh, a fan of, and that's Krzysztof Penderecki, right? Yes. And how did you get turned on to his music? Okay, so just before we signed to EMI, I was lucky enough to do uh, six weeks at college studying music. And in those six weeks, the first thing they, they played us was uh, Penderecki. I think it was Polymorphia. And that was really exciting for me because I just saw him doing these very peculiar sounds. But it was all notated. It was all on paper. And, and yet an orchestra turned it into this strange, otherworldly, you know, collection of textures. And um, yeah, and, and I loved it. And then when I saw it live, I really loved it. I really just became a hundred times better than than just than the recordings and and yeah, I've been obsessed ever since. You just can't get those sounds from electronics. That's a little bit of Christoph Penderecki's Polymorphia. What are they, just banging their bows on the, on the violins and more? Well, Johnny, t- tell us what they're doing there. And how do you notate well, that? With lots of asterisks and, and <laughs> explanatory notes, which exhaust and annoy most orchestras, I'm sure. <laughs> it's one of those things that when you see it in a concert hall, it's very quiet and strange and very colorful and... It's not what you... You see, when you listen to, the, to those recordings of, of Penderecki, you just associate it with horror films and you think it's loud and abrasive and, you know, grating. But in, in the room, it's actually really just very colourful and quiet and, and peculiar and it's a very magical, magical experience. So, yeah, I recommend it. And what they're doing there, if I'm not mistaken, is they're banging the, the wooden side of their bow on the strings instead of the horsehair side of their bow to um, get the, that effect, no? They're probably tapping the instrument, like tapping the body of the instrument. He also does a thing where he has the bass players rubbing the wood and so that it squeaks. Uh. Um, that goes on and also you can bow the bridge, the wooden thing holding the strings up. If you bow that parallel to the strings and you get a very high squeak, which again if your ear is up close to it, sounds horrible, but when a room of 40 string players are playing it it just sounds you know really wonderful you said that you you went to school for about six weeks and and you heard this music and at the same time you you were signed to emi was there a tear because this sounds like you could have been two in in many ways gone two completely different directions and 
Was it w- w- the education and learning about all this music seems like such an attraction in many ways, and yet you went in, in another way. Was it hard to drop out? No, my tutor told me to go. He said, oh. what are you waiting for? Go. He wow. was a wow. really interesting guy called Charlie Blake, who um, he was friends with Iggy Pop, I think, and introduced us to Can as well. He was really instrumental in early Radiohead. He was the first person to give us a cassette with um, Can on. So he was a really... <laughs> Yeah, influential man. And he said, go. The The student's welfare officer told me to stay and said, don't forget it. So I had someone who was sort of 19 saying, stay at college, you'll be fine. <laughs> My teacher was saying, what are you waiting for? Go and be in a band. Sounds great. God bless teachers. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Johnny Greenwood. And you're listening to All Songs Considered. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue, creators of the Yeti Microphone. Ready to record that song, start a podcast, or launch your YouTube channel? Blue is here to help you tell your story and build your audience. Visit bluedesigns.com slash NPR for special pricing. Raise your voice with Blue. Support also comes from Tito's Handmade Vodka. Born and bred in Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. Music's just kind of part of our DNA, says Tito Beverage, founder and master distiller of Tito's Handmade Vodka. For recipes, videos, and more, visit them at titosvodka.com. 80 Proof Tito's Handmade Vodka, 5th Generation Incorporated, distilled and bottled in Austin, Texas, crafted to be savored responsibly. I'm Tom Heisinger, along with Bob Boylan, and we're talking with Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood about his new compositions, 88 Number 1 and 3 Miniatures for Water, which were performed at the Tiny Desk, and about Johnny's admiration for composers like Christoph Penderecki. You say you're stealing from Penderecki and, and others, but that's that's not really true. You're influenced by them. But what do you really learn? What sticks inside your head from those composers all, all of these years? Is it just the sound world that they can conjure up with, with acoustic instruments? I suppose with Penderecki, it's the complexity of it, which I really love. It's the fact that you have 48 individuals and how they play is dependent on how they learn or and what kind of day they had and how they choose to play what's in front of them you know that's complicated when you have two or three people playing together and to have that many people and then you've got the room and the shape of the room and how that sounds and and all those variables are really exciting to me partly i think because i'm just used to working on lots of music that is always the same that is you know sequenced and dependably repetitive whereas with stuff like penderecki you can have an orchestra practice the same bar 10 times and every time it'll sound different and that level of chaos is really appealing to me i find i think it's really interesting and far more interesting than than lots of other ways of making music let's hear just a little bit of johnny of your music now that is kind of in the spirit of of penderecki from a film that a lot of us will know there will be blood uh, you've written a lot of scores for paul thomas anderson's movies and this is a really terrific score and this section is called henry plainview
That's a little bit of Johnny Greenwood's music from the film There Will Be Blood. And how do you get that particular sound? That's all, all string sounds, right? Yeah, that's just all violins. And they're playing quarter tones. Ah. And it's all clusters and sandy and then, then a, a north, you know, so-called normal chord emerges out of it. So uh, here's a question for you because, you know, we know that you write software and you're kind of known as a, a person, well, let's just say it, a gearhead. And I'm curious, like, how does the tweaking of knobs on electronic gear compare to tweaking acoustic instruments to get those sounds for you when you're composing? Oh, that's interesting. Um, is it the same thing or is it different? Well, you mentioned tweaking knobs, and that makes me think of modular gear, modular synthesizers. And the connection to Penderecki, which is interesting is that he learned about that method of making music in the 60s so he learned about white noise generators and filters and but then decided that he could go and do the same sounds with a string orchestra so he turned his back on making that kind of music and went off and wrote things like polymorphia like he just played and i think about that a lot and think about that sort of that way of you know embracing the chaos of of orchestral music as being really really forward thinking and really and i think he was right as well because that a lot of that music from the 60s sounds like it's from the 60s but then i meet people who tell me the penderecki sounds really dated to them so you know but um but to me i think it still sounds like the music of the future really i i work with uh, modular synths and stuff uh for since the 70s and 80s and and always found the surprise that happens in those instruments are what spark me to move in directions that I wouldn't normally move in. And that's sort of what I love about them. You plug something into something else, and what comes out is not what you might predict. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's the complexity of what you have in front of you. Um, and what we have with Radiohead all the time is we'll, we'll set something up and start recording it, and I will change one part or one level and then change another one, and then you can't go back. It's that, that moment's gone. You never get it sounding quite as good again. <laughs> right. And that's a really exciting thing as well. Or frustrating. <laughs> or frustrating. <laughs> but yeah, but it, sh- it, it shows you that there's something that's, that you can't kind of quantify. You can't really measure. You can't, you know, reliably reproduce, which, again, is something that I'm really, I find really exciting. Are there composers today that uh, inspire you who are working in either electronics or with traditional instruments that you love hearing can we play some of that sure i mean i i mean i love steve reich for sure he's he's someone who i who scores i i spend a lot of time looking at and listening to but he's a big influence for sure and it's the attraction to his music would i mean underlying oftentimes is a pulse and a drone uh that must be an attraction but there's more yeah, I think if you listen to something like his music for 18 musicians, what's remarkable about that is it sounds exactly like this digital manipulation you can do on recordings today where you stretch the sound and it's called granular synthesis. So you can make sound longer in time without changing its pitch. And it's a really lovely effect. And then if you listen to music for 18, it sounds exactly the same, except it was written you know, 30 years earlier and it's just done with acoustic instruments. And it's just the most... Wonderful sound, wonderful textures he makes. I'm going to play something from music from 18 musicians here.
I love watching, I don't know, watching maybe is the wrong word, but being present uh, in a live setting to hear this music is... It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It really is. Because you... It's, it's like you, you're watching a whole animal with, with lots of limbs working. <laughs> and, and the guys... Or, or, and the people playing the um, marimbas... It's it's so exhausting. You can only do it for a couple of minutes, and you have someone waiting next to them with a spare set of sticks to take over, and then they they pick up the music they were playing and they go to another instrument to play that, and it's people carrying pieces of music around the stage, and just working. It looks like a crazy office is going on in a way, <laughs> except they're all playing instruments, and it's all about the muscles of the players. It's it's such a physical thing. It's such a you you see the effort of the the skeletons going into making this music. It's amazing. It's a really, and again, it's about, like you say, going, going to see it, going to the room and, and, and experiencing it live. It's really, it's like nothing else. I know it's like Philip Glass, uh, when he was starting out in the early 70s, he had a, just a few musicians with him and they played primarily keyboards and a couple of winds. And, and, and he told us that, you know, when we were starting out, we had to actually learn how to play it. We had to start getting this muscle memory going in our fingers and uh, to to keep up with the uh, with the design of the music. Yeah, and I also love the story of Steve Rice just writing these these phasing pieces and having them for tape because obviously you can't get a musician to play ever so slightly slower than the person next to them. And then he meets percussionists who can do that and suddenly this explosion of, of realising that there are musicians who can do this crazy thing. You even see people do piano phase solo. So they have two pianos and both hands are playing the same thing but the left hand is playing slightly slower than the right hand and it's you know it's just bizarre i can't rub my head and pat my tummy <laughs> yeah. i don't know how, how, how do they that. do that yeah. well actually um there's some things a little bit like that going on in the piano piece that you wrote called 88 number one that's also uh, performed by lisa moore member of ensemble signal part of this um johnny greenwood tiny desk that we have up uh, and available for watching right now. Um, tell us a little bit about what the piano is doing in the in the opening movement of this of this two movement piece. You want to hear just a second of this, just a sure. ten seconds before you say answers. I here we go. singing too or humming that's right that's intentional it is yeah do you want to tell us more about uh the intent and sure i mean so, so 88 has two parts it's got the, the 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 slow beginning which is all um based on my obsession with glenn gould oh uh, hence the humming yes and the gloves she has to wear gloves halfway through and, you know... Because when, just, when Glenn Gould recorded uh, Bach, he, you could hear him explain... Well, the, I think the, 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 the gloves, I think, probably are twofold. One, that Glenn used to wear gloves sometimes, but number two, I think you, you have something in the score um, that uh, for, all, for, all, for the, the way that the pianist has to cover the keyboard... Yes, yeah. it's, it's good to have gloves on because it's it protection. gets pretty wild in the second part, right? Yeah, exactly. But the humming. So oh. the humming, he, yeah, he well, he sing, yeah, like Tom says, you hear him singing along, and 
that's something I've always been fascinated by. It's like I remember going to a to a jazz course once, and they were explaining that what you're meant to do is sing while you're playing and try and shorten the distance between what your head is hearing and what your fingers do. <laughs> so you sing into the saxophone uh, while playing, and and then play what you you know what you've sung instantly and try and make that a very you know close connection and I always found that really interesting Mm. yeah and so and the Glenn Gould recordings all the Bach you know Goldberg variations and the were, were just something that I listened to an awful lot and there's also a great film called 32 short films about Glenn Gould I had a big effect on me when I saw that. How old were you when that when you saw that? I think that's like early nineties. Um, so you're early and he was, in your twenties. Yeah, and he was very obsessive and just a fascinating player. And then you've got a little note at the top of the score that says that the the player should um, think about playing it like Thelonious Monk copying Glenn Gould playing Bach. <laughs> so what does that combination sound like in your head? I mean, now you've said it out loud, it just sounds very pretentious. But um, <laughs> No, I think it's cool. My, well, I suppose I wanted the slightly comic, a sort of darkly comic way that um, Thelonious Monk's playing, I think, which I really love. I just wanted a, you know, unhealthy mashup of the two things, I suppose. But then Glenn Gould at the same time is also extremely fluid in terms of how he plays and unrigid you know some people play bark like it's an exercise but he really you know pulls it around especially in the later recordings when he's playing tends to play things much more slowly just it's wonderful stuff really shall we hear a little bit of the second movement of 88 number one where things get uh they heat up a little bit let's say (laughs) (laughs) great Have you tried playing this? <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. can play. It's, it's like I'm, I'm very good at bluffing. And so what I can do is <laughs> comfortably play the first like eight bars and then I'm lost. So I, I make up an excuse to leave the room at that point. <laughs> so, like, I do that a lot. I do, especially with languages. Like I've learned how to really thoughtlessly say things in Japanese, but they tend to be things like, um, you know, I've got to go now or... Just say <laughs> so it's quite convincing that you can um yeah but I, but so yeah i can i can i mean that's how it's written by playing the first few bars and then trying to work out how it can be developed and then handing it over to someone who's can can do the ridiculous things you're asking them to do and 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 these players exist and it's it's amazing really. and this is lisa moore tom when she finished or played this or worked on this did she say things to you about well she piece? she said that she found it pretty challenging herself and she's you know known the world over as a champion of 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 new and contemporary piano music she said um it was challenging because it was so exposed and clear and very linear and then she also said that she felt like 
uh, some of it was written almost as if it were more for a guitarist. With um, she she noted these difficult chordal jumps in the left hand and things like that, which you know makes me wonder. I, I mean, I assume you wrote this on a keyboard, right, Johnny? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, do you think of difficulty factors when you're when you're composing? Like, uh, like, am I sure that someone can play this, or or doesn't it really figure in that much? I have a weirdly it's a bit like inverted snobbery in that I, I, I'm guilty of writing something and then thinking this is a bit simple and it's a bit childish it's like it's too easy to play therefore I worry that it's not worth doing which is really stupid backward logic but I, I, I end up doing that quite a lot so yeah like simple music makes me suspicious <laughs> which is completely wrong and I'm trying to kind of grow out of it so even like hearing the beginning of that 88 the slow movement I'm sitting here thinking this is really slow and empty and there's not much happening and you know it's that panic of um you know anyway right I'm sweating in this room I've got to say <laughs> it's like, I'm this tiny radio station in Oxford in a very small room with no air and no windows and I'm loving talking to you guys but I'm probably going to go a bit mad yeah yeah well, keep, we're, keep going no i i actually i was going to say i i feel like um we did good and i'm happy we had this conversation so i was going to wrap it just by saying i love the contrast that happens in both and for me uh one is so much a part of the other meaning the simplicity and the complexity together just make the things that i want in music to happen they give me time to think and breathe but also get excited and these two parts of this piano piece did that for me and I was really uh, thrilled to be in the room while uh, Lisa played this thank you Mason that's really sweet of you to say thank you Bob thank you for taking the time to write this and and allowing us to put this out in the world thanks for letting me on the the tiny desk sessions they're they're amazing you you guys should be so proud of them really thank you it's a really special thing we feel fortunate We, we come to work and some amazing musician comes and plays for us and we feed them and then they go home (laughs) fantastic if you ever love to come if you're ever over open uh, invitation yeah totally amazing would love to really sweet johnny thank you so much thank you thank you tom nice to talk to you finally and you guys take care we'll talk to you soon okay be well bye-bye thanks bye-bye johnny greenwood's new work performed by ensemble signal at the tiny desk is online now Go check it out. I'm Bob Boylan. And I'm Tom Heisinger. For NPR Music, it's all songs considered. <laughs>